0: Because what I did was I realized I replicated a a, a narco, essentially, um, in how I did my business. So the business was firecrackers, selling firecrackers, which were illegal. Here
1: we go. From the University of Alabama's Colbrows College Business, it's Bama Means Business a podcast that reveals amazing stories from those people who both inspire and make a difference in our community. I'm Cole Stevens. On the show today, Professor Stephen Bunker. Professor Bunker is actually a history professor focusing in Latin America. During this episode, we're talking about a historian's point of view and how business impacts everything around us. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bunker. It's a pleasure, Cole. Awesome. So just to be clear, you are a professor in the history department here at Alabama, correct? That is correct. Can you tell me your life story, how you got to the University of Alabama?
0: Well, that's quite the question. So let's start off. Uh, I was actually born in Ottawa, Canada, and my parents are both U.S. citizens, but my dad got a job up in Canada. So, but when I was nine months old, they... My dad got a job transfer, and we flew out to Vancouver, and so I pretty well grew up there. I did my undergraduate at the University of British Columbia in the Honors History Program, did a master's in history there, and finally ended up at TCU for my PhD following an advisor and ended up graduating in 2006, already had a job in hand at Alabama. That's how I got here.
1: And more specifically, what was your PhD in by any chance?
0: It's history and specifically Latin American history. And really, I'm a specialist in 19th and 20th century Mexico.
1: Now, to be honest, all throughout high school, we did not talk that much about Latin American history whatsoever. Like Your class was pretty much one of the first introduction classes I've ever had to Latin American history. What fascinated you so much about that? You know,
0: growing up in Vancouver, which is more of a focus to the Pacific Rim and also a fairly strong European heritage at the time when I was growing up, you didn't think about Latin America at all. I mean, when I thought about Mexico, it was just Speedy Gonzalez and old El Paso taco kits, you know. But what I didn't realize until later, I had taken a couple of courses that had Latin American content in history. I was originally actually going to be a business major and that's another story, but um, I finally ended up in the honors history program, which is the junior year that you are uh, you apply for. And then if you're accepted, you go in. The first class I walked into was called the revolutionary option in Latin America. There was eight of us in the class and it was just taught seminar style. There was a professor by the name of William French, Bill French, and that guy just blew my mind. And it's thanks to him that I became a Latin Americanist.
1: This may seem a little offensive to any history majors as I am one myself as well. <laughs> but I have to ask this question. Why history? Why, why should we care about history?
0: You should care about history because, well, Like every religion, it tells you where you're from, tells you who you are and gives you a sense of where you're going. Now, historians are loath to make predictions. I'm not necessarily in that camp. Political scientists have no qualms and that's why they get paid more because they just BS about the future. But really with history, while history doesn't repeat itself, you do see patterns and it is Stunning how you learn a lot about human behavior and how things work, which is really great, actually, when you're thinking about things like long-term investing. It's surprising how there's a lot of uh, crossover with this. But, you know, people often say, yeah, history is the past. Why do we care about it? To which I would answer, why do people fight over what gets taught in history classes so much? And I think that tells you right there That for people to be um, fluent or, or at least, sorry, cognizant of their history and to know it well is part of good citizenship, because then you don't have to take the BS that people who bastardize their history for political and other purposes, you can call their BS. And I think that's why we should care about history.
1: Applying this to business, a lot of businesses are decades, if not centuries old. They have a history that comes along with it. Do you see that as being a very common pattern that companies recognize their history and want to carry that with them? Or is it more changing and flowing every single day that's new?
0: I think when you, I can't speak for each business, but I think you will find that for those who really know the business well and are the real savvy, People, they follow historical trends. You're always looking to the future and for, you know, who knows what's coming uh, forward. Again, past performance is not an indicator of future uh, results. But those who are really smart in this, they aren't just a live for the day moment and only look forward. There is a wisdom that comes from knowing the past. And I think those businesses that have survived use the lessons from the past in order to uh, grow and survive in the future.
1: Going back to your your childhood growing up, this can be a very controversial question because not many people still (laughs) know the answer to it. I don't myself. Did you find yourself being more introverted or extroverted when you were growing up?
0: Probably extroverted. Um, I read a lot. So you think, no, and I had no problems with just reading for hours and hours, but my mom was, a good New Englander, and also between her coaching and how to be a good host, how to be polite, how to manage a conversation, how to be part of it. There is honestly where I grew up and how I grew up, and the people around there made it easy to be social. And I think that is so important because we learn so much from our interactions with other people. I, I'm certainly a much well, more well-rounded person and have had mentors that I probably never would have had I been more uh, introverted or at least unwilling to enter new social situations.
1: As a professor at Alabama, you have published a book, correct? Yes. What was that book titled by any chance?
0: It was, or it is titled Creating Mexican Consumer uh, Culture in the Age of Porfirio Diaz.
1: When you say consumer culture, that Mm -hmm. has a business connotation to it. Could you expand more about what that book was about by any chance? Sure. So there's a period in Mexican history
0: from the 1870s until the Mexican Revolution starts in 1910. And the it's called often the Porfiriato, named after Porfirio Diaz, who was the president for all but four of those years. He's often considered, you know, a, a dictator up to a point, although that's a an, an subject to a little bit of debate. Anyways, because he he ends in in with the Mexican Revolution, he's often vilified. Well, this period is also a period of rapid modernization. He brings in, he brought, brings in a lot of stability. He um, courts foreign as well as domestic, but especially foreign investors to help develop Mexico because, you know, Mexicans remembered the Mexican American War and losing half of their territory at the end of the 1840s. And so, what the Diaz government did was essentially a version of defensive modernization. And so, they are trying to rapidly develop, they need foreign capital. And so this period is known as, it's, it's kind of like the progressive era in the US or the Gilded Age. You have a lot of development of the infrastructure, rail, et cetera, in um, the country. The motto of his, his administration was order and progress. And so one of the questions that I had was, how does the average person understand modernization or the term progress? And one of the big ways you can talk about, you know, ports being uh, deepened and developed, you can talk about railroads and that's important, but you know, a lot of it is, is about material culture, delivering the goods. Literally any government that does not deliver the goods isn't going to last very long or certainly does not have legitimacy. So what I realized when I was an undergraduate at the end of my undergraduate was I was looking at this time period because this is the focus of my, my advisor at the time. And I said, man, I, I see this consumption levels seem to be up. I'm seeing some department stores. I'm seeing how I'm looking at festivals, both civic and religious and seeing how they're having commercial sponsorships. I'm seeing all of this. I'm looking at newspapers over a several year period, seeing the increase in the ads. And I'm going, well, of course people understand progress, and modernization, in part through consumption and the, the material culture, like the buildings and, and retail options that are available to them. So I asked my advisor at the time, hey, has anybody done anything on consumer culture in porphyry in Mexico during this time period? And he says, no. <laughs> and so that became my master's thesis. And then I expanded that to my PhD, my dissertation. And then that dissertation, once it had been reworked after I got to Alabama, became the book.
1: Gotcha. And you did touch up on this, that you were a business student to start out with in undergrad, at least, correct? Yes. Do you think that has always been areas area of interest for you? Is that more business mindset or what were businesses focusing on at like during different points in history, obviously your book points towards that focus as a whole.
0: So, so here's the thing. My parents did not have a lot of money um, until I was about 12. My dad, uh, his job situation, the, the government that came in a year after we moved to British Columbia, he was in the insurance industry and auto insurance. And the government that came in was a left of center government created auto insurance, uh, turned it into a crown corporation. And so my dad was out of a job. He had quite a few years of being in and out of work and was out of, well, he was he was unemployed. My mom ended up working for the local government, but there was frequently uh, strikes and it was the 1970s, early eighties. Anyways, we didn't always have a lot of money. So we all had to make a buck and my brothers and I, my older brothers and I delivered newspapers. There was always a, a certain level of hustle. And if you wanted money, you had to earn it yourself. So I've had quite a few jobs throughout my, uh, my youth and into my early twenties, ranging from mustard factory, working in mustard factory, working in McDonald's, uh, delivering newspapers, etc. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I realized that if I wanted to have money I needed to do it on my own. So I'm always looking around for opportunities for entrepreneurship and one of my favorite favorite ones as I look back on it is one that I use when I teach my drugs and booze class um because what I did was I realized I replicated a a a narco essentially Um, in how I did my business. So the business was firecrackers, selling firecrackers, which were illegal in the province of British Columbia, West Coast. Fireworks were not, but firecrackers were. So when I was 11, I convinced my dad to drive across the border to the Lummi Island Indian Reserve in Washington state. We bought a ton of bottle rockets and firecrackers things. I brought them back. And then I started my own business. The market was pretty impressive because it was a black market. Um, and then I had about two or three runners slash salespeople, uh, friends and such, which I paid in product instead of in cash. So I could pay them less really because whatever. So over the course of three years, from the ages of 11 to 13, I put about $15,000 in the bank. Um, and and so for me, there was always that understanding, if you're going to do well, you better put it on you and you have to use all of the tools in your kit, which includes your personality, but you have to be able to sharp look for opportunities, etc. So for me, the business side was always important. My older brothers who are five and six years older, they, uh, for their undergraduate, they took their undergraduate was a BCom, a bachelor of commerce, which they offer in Canada. So I went, I thought I was going to do this as well because everybody's like, man, bunker, you really got the hustle kind of thing. Again, I I could have probably worked around this, but I had a calculus class in my first year. Our instructor was really good. He was, but he was also a world chess championship judge. After six weeks, he heads off to Greece. We get this terrible prof who is like this old Hungarian prof who just talked into the board and mumbled and wrote really small. So we realized we'd ask him to change. He wouldn't. So we realized we we're going to have to study our own, on our own. Comes to the final exam. We're thinking, great, because it's like all the math, calculus classes, intro classes take at the same time at least we weren't going to get the exam that our original prof had done because he had done it the previous semester. You could get the old exams at that time. We get to the exam. My friend Troy is sitting across from me on this cross on the stairs, the on in the amphitheater and they pass out the exams and we look at it. And at the top, it has exam created by, and it was Nathan Davinsky, my original prof. And I looked over at my friend Troy He looked at me and he just mouthed political science. And I said, history, (laughs) that's probably longer than what you needed. But I was kind of walked around or I was kind of lost in my second year of undergraduate, but I ended up taking 18 credit hours. And there was a couple of history ones at the end of that. I had invitations, which I didn't even know this existed, from both of my professors to come to a wine and cheese party for the honors history program. I had one for geology as well, uh, which I absolutely adored. Um, but I ended up choosing history. I applied and I you're, they accepted 13 people every year. And so that's how I ended up in history. But I've always, I've always had a, a good sense of numbers. And I've always loved the business side of things, which is why I work on consumer culture and business history. And I've even published in business uh, history journals.
1: Now, pivoting to your own experience as well, you have spent time abroad, correct? Not only did you grow up in Canada, you got your education in the United States, you spent time in Latin America yourself, correct? Yes. Can you talk about that experience yourself? As I know, you've also worked with a business school somewhat on trying to have students study abroad in Latin America. Right. Um... So, yeah, I've been really fortunate. Um, I've been to
0: Europe after I finished my undergraduate. I just went for four months on my own because my friend bailed out with four weeks left. And so that was fun. Thanks, Mike Smith. Um, And I've also been able to travel in Southeast Asia as well, but you are correct. The majority of my time has been in really Mexico and Central America. I've spent about four years of my life in Mexico. About three of those were in Mexico City, but I've visited at least about 13 or 14 of Mexico's states. And so that was, it was certainly an experience. It's a real culture shock. And what I always love is seeing how things work. And businesses are certainly one of them. There's such a different way of retailing Um, and some of it, you see holdovers actually from pre-Hispanic in terms of the tianguis, the, the open markets and the way they're done. But then of course you get modern business, like business, uh, models that are coming from the U S or Europe, et cetera. So it's a real interesting mishmash.
1: That time in Latin America, obviously, going there, how do you think you changed personally, or at least your perceptions of Latin American change? And how do you bring that into the classroom yourself? To distill it down in a few
0: things. First of all, um, I had certain stereotypes about Mexico and parts of Latin America, again, growing up where and, and, and when I did. But what I found was, um, especially like Mexicans, they treated me way better than I deserved um, or could have expected. And I've always been kind, uh, been amazed by their kindness, their hospitality. And yeah, there can be a few jerks there too, but overall great experience. So for me, I have a real fondness for, um, for the people who I have met. I'd also say that you realize that <sighs> you have to realize that you are, are being dropped into a completely different environment. There are similarities, but you have to, everything from your, your timing, you have to understand that certain things might take longer. You might see that some people are not as punctual. You have to understand the cultural cues. If if you're also coming down to do business, I find one of the things that is often a problem for people in the U S going down is they want to cut straight to the chase. They want to talk business right off. Now in certain corporations, especially, especially multinationals at a certain level, that's what you're going to do in Mexico anyways. But even at those levels, you have to understand that people need a social introduction with you. You need to do the lunch. You need to have a drink, ideally, you know, you need to talk about a few things first. And if you can also show them that you know something about where you're doing business and the people, and you respect that, you will do a heck of a lot better. The people who just come in there and and come across as the, the gringo feo, the ugly gringo, you know, you're not going to do as well as you had hoped to. And so I think it's it's understanding the cultural um, structures as well as those P's and Q's, which is something that you better learn if you want to do well.
1: That's Professor Bunker, history professor here at Alabama. And thanks so much for listening to the show today. If you're not a subscriber, do subscribe to our podcast wherever you get yours. And of course, check out our website at culverhouse.ua.edu to learn more about the Culverhouse College of Business and what it has to offer. And as always, Roll Tide.